Good morning to those of you in Australia. Good evening to those of you uh, beaming in from the United States or North America. I'm Michael Green, the CEO of the U.S. Studies Center at the University of Sydney, and delighted to be um, opening this event with my friend Iris Shapiro, who has written uh, a book um, we will be discussing over the next hour and a half, The Betrayal, How Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans Abandoned America. It's a rich book. It's a spicy title. Um, in addition to uh, Ira, we have Bill Crystal and our own Bruce Volpe to unpack um, the uh, legacy of uh, uh, Senator McConnell, but also the general trajectory in congressional politics and American politics more broadly and how it affects Australia and our allies in the Indo-Pacific. Let me open first um, by um, acknowledging the traditional owners of Australia. Uh, the University of Sydney stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And I pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. And I further acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which you are on and pay respects to the elders, past, present, and future. Um, uh, Ira Shapiro, I uh, have admired and known for a long time. We share a common interest in Japan because Ira was a, a trade negotiator at USTR for a long time when I was an intern early on in my career in Washington and, and uh, saw Ira regularly at events in Washington. He's had a 45-year uh, uh, career in Washington in politics and policy and international trade. He served for 12 years in senior staff positions in the U.S. Senate, uh, working for a series of distinguished senators, um, household names for Washingtonians like myself, Jacob Javits, Gaylord Nelson, uh, Abe uh, Ribicoff, Tom Eagleton, Robert Byrd, and Jay Rockefeller, a uh, senator with very, very strong Japan and Indo-Pacific ties from West Virginia. Um, he served in the office of the U.S. Trade Representative during the Clinton administration as general counsel and then chief negotiator with Japan and Canada um, with the rank of ambassador. And from 2012 to 2017, he was the chairman of the National Association of Japan America Societies, NAJAS, um, and received a commendation from the foreign ministry. So Ira brings both um, insider knowledge of the Senate, but especially how Senate politics affect our friends and allies in the Indo-Pacific. Um, Bruce uh, Wolpe, our senior fellow uh, at the U.S. Studies Center, who is a regular contributor on politics uh, in both the U.S. and Australia, um, has worked both in the U.S. Senate and for the Australian Prime Minister, will lead a discussion with Ira. And then we're very uh, pleased and delighted and honored that Bill Crystal, the editor-at-large of The Bulwark and director of Defending Democracy Together, uh, is joining us for this conversation. He was the founder of the Weekly Standard, which I read religiously while working as an intern several layers below Ira in the 1990s. Um, he uh, led the Project for the Republican Future, which is an organization that helped the strategy that produced the 1994 Republican congressional victory. Um, and from 85 to 93, he served as Chief of Staff to Education Secretary Bill Bennett in the Reagan administration and uh, Chief of Staff to Vice President Dan Quayle in the George Herbert Walker Bush administration. So um, we have a really um, expert panel. Delighted you could all join us. I'm going to turn it over to Bruce to to get started with Ira about the book and begin our conversation. Bruce? Uh, thank you so much, Mike. Uh, Ira, it's just wonderful to have you here. And Bill, uh, thank you for coming in as well. I know it's not MSNBC, but we're really honored that you're, uh, that you're with us today. Um, Ira and I, Ira, we've known each other for a long time and talked politics for a long time, collaborated on some issues. And I really want to start with, um, with, with the book. This is your third that you've written. Um, uh, it, the first was uh, the first one he did was celebrate the Senate, what it was uh, in the 19, in, from the 
70s, 80s, into the 90s with leaders who really grappled with serious issues and resolved them, notwithstanding big partisan differences. Uh, and then it, it, the Senate went into a period of real decline. Uh, you call the Senate broken. Um, and now you've written a book on Mitch McConnell, uh, probably the most powerful and uh, certainly politically cunning uh, Senate leader ever, um, as engineering a betrayal of American democracy. Um, the people here in Australia follow the Senate because they follow American politics and want to understand what is happening. When they see something happening, why is it happening? Why does this occur? How, can, how is America, the American government functioning? So I want to ask you why you wanted to write this book. And as you see it, what do we need to understand about the Senate today? Bruce, thanks so much. And it's hard to be with three people I admire more than Mike Green, Bill Crystal, and you. So I appreciate this opportunity to reach the audience in Australia. So thank you, Mike, for having us. Um, I got hooked on the Senate as a young person because I worked in the Senate as an intern at a time when the Senate was helping the country come to grips with the abuse of power by Richard Nixon, that we, abuses that we generally think of as Watergate. And at that time, the Senate stood up and asserted its independence, held the helped hold the president accountable and helped steer the country through a period of crisis. I was attracted to the Senate. I came back to work there and then later on looped back to write about it. There's been a long decline in the Senate, and I describe that in my second book. But this book was an effort to put an alternative lens on the events of the Trump presidency. The way I think about it is that President Trump, I believe Donald Trump was a catastrophe for our country in many ways, but the failure of government was the Senate. The Senate had the fundamental responsibility of holding Trump accountable, and they failed to do so, and they failed consciously and knowingly. And that's the essence of the book I wrote. And I think betrayal is not too strong a term. But the book also has some lasting implications, I think, going forward. Can the Senate help save the country? We're in a our democracy is hanging literally by a thread, and no one's been more eloquent on that than Bill Crystal has, so I'm delighted he's here with me. But the Senate has brought us to a bad place, and the question with respect to the Senate is whether it can do better and help us through, through this crisis that we're still in. Bruce, you're on mute. <laughs> okay. Um, your book really centers on two major developments while McConnell has been leader, particularly in, in the past few years. One is ensuring that conservatives are on the Supreme Court and, just, and conservative justices are approved um, for, uh, all the for all the federal courts. And they've been very successful. He worked hand in glove with Trump to get that done. And I'd like you to discuss the significance of that. And then on the accountability issue, it seems that Senator McConnell would come up to the edge of really making a decisive break with Trump that would have consequences uh, for 
the Republican Party for the Senate and its ability to function and the future. But he never got there in the end. But uh, could you discuss those two issues and how they evolved a little bit and, and the consequences of what McConnell has done as leader? Well, first, I think it's impossible to overstate the importance of what was done to the Supreme Court. And the one thing I would differ with you on, Bruce, and I differ with all kinds of commentators, using the word conservative about this Supreme Court, while we used to talk about liberal versus conservative, it doesn't apply to this court, which is a radical court. It's an extremist court. And McConnell takes great pride in his accomplishment. As many in Australia know from following our politics, he prevented Obama, President Obama from putting Merrick Garland on the Supreme Court, and then was able to get through three Trump appointees, the last of which was put through eight days before election day in what I consider to be a, a dramatically anti-democratic act, democratic with a small d. As a result, we have an extremist court that has taken dramatic steps to change the law, not just the uh, rescission of abortion rights, but also with respect to guns and environment and other matters. So this court will be with us for a long time. Number one, that's McConnell's, he calls that his greatest accomplishment. And I agree, it's a, an enormous accomplishment, but it's been very destructive of our democracy. The second point that you make, he gave two superb speeches condemning Trump, both on January 6th and in the second impeachment trial, but then couldn't bring himself to vote to convict Trump. His political calculation, which I don't disagree with, he felt Trump was too strong to bring down. Maybe if I wait, he'll wither away under investigations, et cetera. It hasn't worked exactly that way, but I think he was politically correct in the sense that he couldn't bring him down. But the problem with McConnell, and I say this in the book, nothing is ever beyond calculation for him. The notion that Trump conducted an assault on our democracy, desecrated, incited a riot that desecrated the Capitol, McConnell was offended by that but he still calculated that he couldn't bring down Trump. It's really um, the consequences are, I mean, if he had changed his mind during the second impeachment trial and reached a judgment that in fact, Trump should be convicted of the uh, charges against him, then Trump would have been barred from running for the presidency again. And, and but he never, he, he did not cross that Rubicon. And so, and here we are today with everyone speculating, well, is Trump going to run? Is he going to become president again? What does it mean for America? What does it mean for the world? It's, it was really quite a moment. It was, it was a moment. And McConnell occasionally implies that, well, he didn't have enough other Republicans who would have voted to convict Trump. That's nonsense. Right. If he had wanted to convict Trump, 
he would have had the nine others that he needed to go with the seven that actually did stand up. So, but I want to turn to one, there's one other point that's worth making because we are living with the consequences of Trump's big lie that the election was stolen. I blame McConnell and the other Senate Republicans who knew that was not true, but let Trump talk about it, let the big lie foment all over the country for five long weeks between the election day and the uh, electoral college vote. That was when the big lie spread and could not be contained anymore. And that was yet again when McConnell didn't do the right thing. And, and, and through all this, though, there's um, hyper-partisanship. It's not just pro-Trump, anti-Trump, but just hyper-partisanship between the parties. Uh, and it seems to me the point of politics today is to destroy your opposition, not work together with uh, whoever you can. There are some exceptions. We had the infrastructure bill. Um, we've had the uh, chips bill on semiconductors, um, NATO expansion, for your, Russia, Ukraine, foreign policy things. But um, there seems to be no end to the poison of hyper-partisanship. And, and the Senate's living, we're all living with the consequences of this political culture. Are there any signs of a break in this, of any improvement in the atmosphere for the Congress to be elected and what we'll, what we'll see over the next two years? It's an unusual picture in the sense that, as you point out, there have actually been a number of significant legislative accomplishments in this Congress, more than we have seen previously. I think to some extent, there are a group of Democrats and Republicans who come together in sort of a moderate, more centrist way. And the Republicans, I think a number of them, don't want to be totally obstructionist. They think they're there to do things for the country. And so some of them have come forward. Even McConnell has occasionally said, we have to do the infrastructure bill, et cetera. His calculation is that he would rather not be going to the elections in, two, in, this, in November with a record of total obstruction. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there have been some accomplishments. For 10 years in my three books, I've urged senators to sort of come together. Senators, you ought to take back the Senate. You shouldn't have a leader-driven, dominated Senate that you have. You're there for a reason. And frankly, I've been... But one last thing, Bruce. It is, we are a divided country. It's hyper-partisan, we know that. But from my standpoint, the senator's obligation, and particularly the Senate leader's obligation, is to try to overcome that. They should be bringing people together, not exacerbating the differences. And that's where McConnell has been an architect of division. And which brings me to the McConnell-Biden relationship, because I think Biden's instincts at, at, at his, in his heart is to try and 
be that bipartisan bridge on, a, on as many issues as he can. But, it, you know, it's very hard to get the, what is their relationship? And if McConnell becomes majority leader again, what's that going to mean for the last two years of Biden's first term? Well, McConnell would say that he likes Biden. Uh, and he certainly likes Biden better than he liked Obama. McConnell's the kind of person, the only person I know who could have written a memoir in 2016, dripping with contempt for the president who was still in office. But the fact that he likes Biden doesn't alter his calculation. Biden's a democratic president and therefore he has to fail. And so McConnell will do what he can to try to make them fail, except when he feels it's necessary to do a few things so that he's not a total obstructionist. Right. He will be disastrous if he's majority leader. And frankly, he's damaging enough as minority leader. And what, what do you think is going to happen? Talk a little bit about the book. Your book doesn't address much on the foreign policy, but here we are in Australia and we're very concerned about, as Mike has pointed out, with uh, Asia, the Indo-Pacific and uh, China and those relations and, and the Republican Party. And it seems to go to the Democrats as well. Very strong uh, concerns, anti-China sentiment building, given events that have been unfolding. How does McConnell see that? And what's your reading of Republicans as well on that and, and what we might look for over the next year or so? Well, I'd always love to hear from Mike on this because no one knows this better than he does. But I think that there is a pretty broad bipartisan view on China. Um, my personal view for a long time is I'd love to keep China in the category of a very tough competitor, but not an enemy. But there's no question that both Democrats and Republicans strongly believe that China is not only a competitor, but a threat to the peace in, in the Asia Pacific region. And so I don't think that that's that's not a partisan issue of the sort that really has characterized the difference between Biden and McConnell or Democrats and Republicans. I, I regret very much that Democrats and Republicans came together to de defeat the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. I think that was a terrible mistake that we made Trump took us out of it, but the Democrats had greased the skids already. And with that, having lost the TPP, we turned our backs on Australia, Japan, and many other allies. And we did terrible damage to our position in the, in the Asia Pacific region. That wasn't about partisanship, that was about bad policy. Thank you, which is a perfect place, Mike, to continue the discussion with uh, Ira and Bill. Well, um, that was really um, excellent. And um, I'm gonna turn it over to Bill Crystal, who I suspect will have no disagreement on the Donald Trump part of the discussion, but we'll be interested, Bill, in your take on Mitch McConnell in the Senate. So over to you for some comments. Uh, I, first, it's great to be with you all. And it's great to be in Australia, if only virtually. It'd be nice to be there. I've been there three or 
two, three times, three times, I think. It, like, looked again, visit again, and uh, very much enjoyed it. Um, you know, I, 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 it's a very good book, incidentally. People should read it by, by Ira. Um, it's going to be with all of you. Um, I, I guess I would say this. I, I think one thing that comes out of the book that is a point that's underappreciated is this. Donald Trump, I'm, I'm anti-Trump, so I'll just you know, put that on the table there. But, uh, you know, he's a demagogue, in my opinion, did a fair amount of damage as a candidate, did more damage once he won in a slightly flukish way in 2016. So, but, you know, the country's pretty is strong. The institutions are strong. A, a, a president who's irresponsible, a little bit reckless, demagogic, uh, will do some damage. That can be the best four years in American history, but can be managed. And the institutions did manage him in some ways, including people in his own administration, people in the cabinet, uh, foreign leaders, incidentally, this is a very underappreciated thing. Mike would have detailed knowledge of this. Foreign leaders are pretty impressive. I'd say, you know, I, I'm, a lot of conservatives especially complain about our allies. They don't you know, they don't pay enough for NATO, they don't assume the burden, they always want to, they don't always stand up when they might to help, you know, uh, to help us or to, or to, or to, to uh, be strong against belligerent neighbors like China and so forth. The truth is, from President Abe to other leaders in, uh, uh, in, our, in Asia, to the European leaders, again, whatever one thinks of them personally, sort of mixed Merkel, May, Macron, they all really kept it together, you know, they had plenty of excuses and their domestic constituencies were not pro-Trump. And Trump did things that would have enabled them if they wished to, to, to kind of grandstand, Trump grandstanded, they could have grandstanded back and we could be, Biden could have inherited a much tougher world than he did actually. We, so we owe something to our allies and we owe a lot to the institutions internally, uh, ranging from obviously the courts to the media to civil society that I think kept things together uh, in many ways, the guardrails and actually helped prevent Trump from truly uh, overturning a, a free and fair election after, after November 3rd and, uh, and up to January 6th. And so uh, the institutions were strong, but I think I was right, the, the Congress was sort of the, which is supposed to be the strongest institution in the separation of powers and in balancing the president ended up not being strong. And the modern party system overwhelmed the, uh, the separate institutions party loyalty, which is a complicated issue of how it became the way it is, but overwhelmed the notion that they should stand up to Trump. And that's crucial because to get back to the, what I began with, I mean, a, an individual demagogue for four years, many countries have had that and you, you know, get past it, so to speak, right? It, it, it wouldn't have, what made Trump so uh, damaging and makes him so dangerous is his complete control of one of our two major parties, complete is too strong, but his dominance of one of our two major parties. That suddenly means that it's not just him. It's you know, it, it's it's not one person with bipartisan majorities checking him, overruling, over you know, overturning veto, overriding uh, vetoes, um, ensuring legislation gets passed. There was a little bit of that, especially in foreign policy, but not enough. And quite the contrary, they ended up gradually succumbing and becoming going from acquiescing in Trump to enabling Trump to sort of cheering him on in many cases. McConnell's not quite in the cheering on category, but certainly failed to stand up in the key moments. And that's what makes this so dangerous. It's Donald Trump and the Republican Party that are now a threat, in my opinion, to American democracy, to the rule of law, large chunk of the Republican Party. And unfortunately, if you look at the last year and a half in the elections, probably an increasing chunk actually of the Republican Party. And that's, that was not inevitable. That was not inevitable. And I didn't think incidentally it would happen. I was very anti-Trump, very alarmed about Trump, but I actually thought in 2017, you know, they could mitigate the damage and, and they, there are enough of them there, given what they were saying privately about Trump, 
who might do so. But a couple of them, you know, lost primaries and, and Trump, you know, showed that he commanded the base of the party and they just uh, capitulated. And McConnell was the, is, they look up to McConnell. He's a tough, shrewd partisan leader. If he had stood up, I think a lot of them would have stood up. Irish writers, not just on the vote on Jan, in February on conviction after the second impeachment. In many, many instances, if McConnell had, sent, had gone in a different direction, that would he have been challenged by some Trump person, maybe for the leadership, for the majority leadership or minority leadership, perhaps. But he was unwilling to take that risk. Uh, he went along, if sometimes grudgingly and sometimes leaking stories about how he was unhappy about this or that. Um, you know, he probably did prevent a few bad things from happening behind the scenes and certainly worked with people like McMaster, who was national security advisor and uh, other people in the administration who were more responsible to kind of prevent things from going too, too far off the rails. But when people write the story of this, the threat to democracy, McConnell isn't exactly on the ramparts, but he's one of the people who didn't do what he could have done to make it much less dangerous than it now is, I'm afraid. Um, thanks. I'm going to, since Ira sort of prompted me and so did Bill, I'm going to abuse my moderator chair role and opine for just a minute. Yeah. Um, picking up on what Bill just said, I, um, I, to, to me, the, the book really spells out the common cause. Um, it's not just, you know, as Ira notes, it's not just that McConnell's uh, party's base was being controlled by Trump, but there was common cause, especially on the Supreme Court. Um, but on the national security front, um, the, the, the McConnell Republican Party in the Senate blunted and blocked Trump in a lot of turns. <clears throat> and just to give one specific example that's of relevance to this region, when, when, when President Trump met with Kim Jong-un and said that he was going to pull U.S. troops out of Korea, um, when the National Defense Authorization Act was passed the next time, there was an amendment that said no troops may be pulled out of Korea without Senate approval. Um, and no funds may be spent for that purpose. That was done by Lindsey Graham, Dan Sullivan, Ben Sass. It was done by Republicans in the Armed Services Committee um, with McConnell's blessing. So um, you, both of you have noted, and Ira and, and Bruce and Bill, all three of you, that they're on China, but especially on allies, there is strong bipartisanship. And McConnell's Republican Party blunted some really dangerous things that Trump might have done. And uh, Bill's absolutely right. Abe and um, uh, Australian prime ministers um, were in cahoots with McMaster's and the national security um, uh, establishment, but also with the Republicans in the Senate. I mean, the only Republican senator who really uh, was out of um, sync on this, and he didn't serve on the Senate Armed Services or Foreign Affairs Committee, would have been the senator from Kentucky, the junior senator. Um, who's a sort of one real isolationist in the Republican ranks in the Senate. So it's, 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 there's some comfort, some comfort for allies in that. And, and in Washington, I saw it up, up pretty close. I wanted to ask, um, by the way, on the China debate, when you read what Democratic senators say today and Republican senators say today about China, to me, it's like reading the Weekly Standard in 1996. <laughs> so congratulations, Bill, you've basically... Perseverance pays off. The debate, thanks to Xi Jinping in part, has gone your has gone your way. It's a pretty strong bipartisan consensus. Let me ask all of you, um, starting with Ira. I, this morning, I, I, you know, Sydney time, I read in the Post and the Wall Street Journal the pretty horrific things, offensive things that Donald Trump said about Mitch McConnell's wife. I'm sure you saw it. 
um, uh, because McConnell in the speech said that, you know, the Senate was more um, dependent on the quality of candidates, which the press interpreted rightly as a dig on the candidates, extreme candidates that Trump had endorsed. But, but Donald Trump just went at him and his wife in the most offensive way. And I guess the question for you is if, I know the, the, the Senate's really a toss up, but if McConnell becomes majority leader, the Republicans take the Senate, once they've done it, uh, given this new split with Trump, do you see a different scenario for how McConnell handles Donald Trump um, after the midterms if he's, you know, the majority leader, if the Republicans win? I'll, I'll, I'll go down the line, be interested in all your views, but Ira, what do you think? Is, is, the, is the McConnell you've described the McConnell we get, or is it possible, even for reasons of calculation, he, he openly splits with Donald Trump in a more pronounced way? He's got his Supreme Court. He will if the scenario goes right for him, have his majority. And the president just insulted his wife in a way that most people would not take sitting down. What do you think? Mike, there's no doubt that McConnell detests Trump. He, he would like nothing better than to be rid of Trump. He wanted to be rid of Trump at the time of the insurrection. He wants to detest Trump. Um, I think that ultimately what you will find is McConnell will support the nominee of the Republican Party in 2024. If it is Trump, he will swallow it all and, and he will support Trump. I find that I find that to be appalling. But there, there is no moment that McConnell will actually break with the nominee of the Republican Party. He would fervently like someone else to be the nominee of the Republican Party, but he won't actively do anything. Bill, what do you think? I mean, I would, I guess, yeah, no, I think that's right. I'll tie it into Mike's very, you know, intelligent and informative and nuanced, actually, discussion, which I think is important of the last, of the four years of the Trump presidency. McConnell did stop, and, and others like McConnell and the, let's call it the Republican establishment, the one thing they can be praised for, I think, is keeping some, you know, keeping some of the guardrails uh, guarding and, uh, and rails, whatever the metaphor is here, and preventing them from just collapsing. On the other hand, the unwillingness to take on Trump has resulted in the situation we're now in, where Trump is more likely than anyone else to be the nominee of that party, which is a, has half of the country, basically, uh, supporting it in 2024, and a whole bunch of people are running as Trumpier types to replace the Rob Portmans of the world and the Pat Toomey's of the world in big states like Ohio and Pennsylvania. And so uh, we have a big threat in 2024, which we needn't have had, certainly as people have said, if McConnell had acted in February, but certainly if, if for four years there'd been an attempt to really prevent the takeover of the Republican Party, for me, that's really the key thing that McConnell allowed to happen uh, even as he was sort of, you might say, on, on tactical things, which are important in the real world, preventing the worst things from happening. But in the big picture, he let a very bad thing happen. I mean, going forward, I would just say, what people underestimate a little is, I mean, Trey, of course, dislikes Trump. Um, people say, well, he, he doesn't want it, much preferred if Trump's not the nominee. I think he personally would, but I think a lot of people around him and the establishment of which he's at the center of the Republican establishment in DC also thinks, you know what? Maybe Trump is Trump's awfully Trump brings in a lot of voters. 
it's not clear that Trump's an electoral loser. This has been one of the biggest mistakes I think some of my fellow Never Trumpers have made since the very beginning, since 2015. And I made it a little, but I corrected quite early, I will say, in my defense, which is, well, it's just ridiculous. He's going to lose. It's pathetic. How can you be, you know, how, signing on with Trump is just a, it's just you're consigning the party to minority status. It's consigning yourself to discredit. You know, it's it's a losing proposition. I wish it were a losing proposition, so obviously, but the truth is a lot of people signed on with Trump are doing very well <laughs> politically, financially, you know, whether it's on Fox News or in, or in politics, actually, and, and some of the even craziest ones are doing okay. And the people who took on Trump, and Liz Cheney's the most recent example, uh, are retiring or defeated. And so, no, I think it's a noble defeat and all that, but still, it is. Politicians look at that and they think, geez, you know, in Wyoming, she got 29% of the vote. 20% of the Republican vote actually in that primary, since you got a lot of Democrats crossing over. So the degree to which um, people around McConnell, maybe not McConnell quite himself also, very it's not just that they're timid or scared in a very personal way, like he's gonna be primary. They're very nervous about antagonizing Trump's support. And Trump's support is deeper than it was in 2016, because he's of course been demagoguing and attaching these people to him for five, six years now. So we, we, you've created a situation, where, you know, it's sort of the tiger, you know, riding the tiger kind of thing, right? Where you, you sort of can't, you, you don't want to keep doing it. You're not really happy to be on top of this tiger, but you can't quite figure out how to dismount. And I think that's really the situation here now. And, and that's dangerous going forward, I think, for foreign policy. So he's done good, and domestic policy. So he's done good things. Some of the things he's saved in the past are now endangered because of, the, of that decision uh, that he's made. Uh, Bruce, you want to weigh in on this one? Yeah, just briefly, uh, as Ted Cruz, I mean, uh, Trump has form in attacking uh, the partners of uh, Republican candidates and Cruz if it was a 100% Trumper. Um, yeah. But I also agree with Ira and Bill, but Ira's point on, on McConnell being is such a calculating politician and his calculation is he does not want to work with another Democratic president. So whoever's the nominee, he will support. So there's a question, I'm well, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, and look, I, the number of people who are stand up like Liz Cheney and Adam Kitzinger or Bill Kristol and others who have been very strong in their opposition to Trump and what he's done to the party and to the country. Um, not that many people. And I think that's unfortunate. It, uh, you know, it, Ben Sass, the senator from Nebraska, voted to remove Trump, convict Trump in the second impeachment trial. And he said, some things are beyond calculation. And that's the problem that McConnell and the others can never, you know, for McConnell and Lindsey Graham particularly and the others, nothing's ever beyond calculation. They were outraged for a while about what happened at the Capitol. And then they calmed down and they said, yeah, Trump's got a lot of support, can't go against him. And it is, as Bill said, and as I used to start my book, he who rides the tiger cannot choose where he dismounts. And that's what, that's what they've done. And McConnell, as smart as he is, constantly misjudged his ability to manage the situation. Manage it. He thought he could manage it. And when he said the 2020 election was over, he thought it was over. Well, that wasn't Trump's plan. So 
He's made he made a lifetime of mistakes in a couple of months in 2020. And I guess I would just say one more thing. I mean, it's unclear who will have the majority and actually in either body, though the Republicans are more likely to take the House than the Senate, which means that the one thing that seems more likely is not that McConnell will be majority leader, but that McCarthy will be speaker of a conference that what everyone thinks of the Senate Republicans, the House Republicans are way more irresponsible. And from our point of view, if I can presume that we have vaguely similar views on, on most foreign policy issues, including trade, much more, uh, you know, protectionist, isolationist, America first, nativist, um, uninterested in, you know, doing things to make life easier for allies and so forth, uh, open to demagoguery on China. They happen for now to be kind of anti-China, often in a very silly way, sort of, not silly, but, you know, whatever, in a crude way, let's say. Uh, that can go off the rails itself, incidentally. And, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if it's sort of almost they snap back in an opposite direction too, because it's not well grounded on really thinking through uh, geopolitical uh, things or the deep belief in many cases in democracy or human rights. So, um, you know, for now it's okay that I think both parties are in a reasonable place in terms of being, you know, wary of China and but not irresponsibly so, but uh, we'll see how long that lasts. But anyway, we're gonna, I mean, just if, if I were in Australia and worrying about what's the next US government gonna look like in 25, well, that's a real worry. But even in 23-4, you could have a House of Representatives that's pretty irresponsible, that tries to impeach Biden, that has endless hearings on Hunter Biden, that uh, seizes on various issues, wants to be America first-ish in various ways, which uh, for now is sort of directed against China in the Asian context. So it's okay, I guess, you know, for our allies, but, you know, it wouldn't take much. I don't think, Mike, you should talk about this to, to go in some other direction. And so I'm pretty worried even about, you know, 23, 24 in terms of the base, I mean, stability, whatever. I mean, the fact that the Democrats are control both branches uh, has really allowed Biden and the fact that he's been a little more hawkish maybe than a typical Democrat would be on some key things. And I would say that the Republicans in the Senate are pretty responsible on this stuff, at least on foreign policy, has allowed Biden to run a pretty traditional foreign policy without a heck of a lot of interference from Congress. When you think about it for a minute, it's kind of, uh, you and I, Mike, have seen, uh, and I, all of us have seen more interference actually in our day, right, from Congress <laughs> on a lot of issues than Biden has seen now, but it does help to control the committees, of course, and to have the majority. You know, again, I don't think ultimately, of course, Biden will veto things, and of course, the House can't really change American foreign policy, but could they be an amazing amount of, of you know, hubbub and, and disruption, I guess, and summoning people to, you know, uh, in demagogic ways to, to committee hearings and screaming and yelling. I mean, I don't know, it'd be, I wouldn't be surprised if people left the Biden, the senior part places, the part, positions in the Biden administration in 23, 24, partly if they figured, oh, wait, I don't need two years of this, you know? So anyway, I'm a little worried even about 23, 24, let alone 25, less because of McConnell in the Senate and more because of McCarthy in the House. Yeah, to your last point, Bill, I, I left the Bush administration right before the uh, midterms. Uh, and when I talked to friends and colleagues in the NSC and state defense about what life was like, they said it was horrible. When, when the opposition controls your purse strings, it's not fun. Bill, real quick, just parenthetically, one of the big variables in all this will be whether or not there's an actual, and you touched on this, whether there's an actual foreign policy uh, concept uh, to animate the, the Trump world. And how do you view things like the NatCon movement and the America First Institute? I mean, to somebody like me who comes from a traditional think tank, they look vaguely clownish, but, but there's political 
momentum there, at least with the MAGA world? Is it is it an intellectual or conceptual base that could start to influence a Republican House and Senate and maybe a 2025 Republican administration? I mean, I, yes, because I, I think the essence of the Trumpism is a, is a kind of populism that's you know, somewhat free-floating. It's not like, and this is a very important point that Umberto Eco, the great Italian writer, made 25 years ago in a piece that I had missed at the time. It came across a couple of months ago on fascism, where he's sort of worrying in 95, interestingly, about a revival of a kind of fascism with Milosevic and so forth. And, and he says, very, we all sort of have Nazism and communism in our minds, I think, as the models, totalitarianism, ideologies, very bad ideologies, uh, very damaging, destructive, and terrible. Uh, but fascism is sort of different. It, it, it is, it's, it's grievances, it's, it's unhappinesses, it's anger, it's hatred, it's dislike of foreigners, it's appeals to one's history in sort of but somewhat arbitrary ways. And he says, you can't really predict where it's going to go. Mussolini, Mussolini starts off as being anti-clerical and kind of modernist, and then he ends up being in alliance with the church and appealing to you know, the Roman Empire and the fascists and all that. I mean, it's a mishmash. And I think Trumpism is a little that way. I do think that, unfortunately, the, the anti-immigration nativist part is probably the deepest actual stratum of it, or as deep as any. Uh, that can't be good, ultimately, in foreign policy. Uh, for now, it's also belligerent and sort of um, and very anti-China and sort of, even though Trump is kind of pro-Putin, Republican Party there, there's enough tradition to, you know, you can't just let a big country in, uh, invade its neighbor and commit atrocities and, and sort of do nothing. Europe stepped up more than you know, one might have expected, which made it a little easier for, for Biden to do it and so forth. But I'm pretty worried. So I'm a little less worried. I, I can't know how to put this well. It's a little less than in our day when you sort of worry that, well, this is a bad idea that could gain prominence and convince people. I don't know that anyone's convincing anyone of anything, but they have sort of doctrines or quasi-doctrines uh, or slogans around that could be used if it becomes useful for them to do something. So, so I don't know, something goes wrong in Ukraine. I mean, God forbid some Americans get involved somehow and hurt, or, you know, something goes awry and uh, looks, or the, some of the winter's really bad in Europe and the Europeans start to split off and then our gas prices go back up and so forth. I mean, I don't, I, I don't have great confidence that there's a lot of stability in the Republican support for a sound foreign policy in certain ways. And uh, as the presidential election gets closer in 24, I can imagine, uh, presidential candidates being tempted to demagogue about uh, what Biden's any mistakes or failures or apparent failures or mishaps that have happened under Biden. There are always, you know, some, right? So the whole thing makes me, it's a little less that I think those doctrines are very convincing and more that they're around mm. to provide uh, uh, ammunition yeah. for a yeah. party that is now mostly driven by hatred of the other party and wanting to own the libs and a whole lot of a whole lot of grievances. Yeah, um, yeah, intriguing and discouraging. Um, Ira, there's a question here from Tony Booth, which is um, for you, uh, and that is, uh, you know, you, you described how powerful Mitch McConnell is. How do you compare him to LBJ? If we put your book up against Caro's books, which 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 I would do, <laughs> um, you know, how do you compare the light of the Senate? LBJ nope. to McConnell. Uh, they're different people, different times, but in terms of their power, their their ethics, their 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 legacy. Well, nobody will ever write a better book than Robert Caro's book, um, Master of the Senate. 
but it was a superb biography. I would argue that McConnell has far, far outstripped LBJ in terms of what he's accomplished in the Senate. He's been there longer. He's, he's finishing 16 years as leader. He's held his party together. He surfed the madness of the Republican Party. All those House leaders find themselves on the, you know, discarded, defeated, disgraced. McConnell's been there 16 years. He has a very powerful legacy, Mike. He's got an, he's written a page in history. Unfortunately, I think it's a very dark legacy. I think it's one that has cost the Senate. It has cost the Supreme Court. It has diminished, it diminished the Obama presidency from what it could have accomplished. And I think that I think he's accomplished an enormous amount, and I think it's been very destructive. LBJ, by the time LBJ had been leader for a few years, the Democrats were already rebelling against him. And LBJ would say, you know, what's wrong with these people? When, when JFK offered him the vice presidency, he kind of jumped at it to get out. And also that it was the best road to the presidency. Yeah. Um, on... Mitch McConnell's um, political acumen. Uh, Carmelin Pulse asks, um, did Chuck Schumer just outwit Mitch McConnell with all this legislation? It, it, maybe McConnell's not as masterful as we think. What, I'll open that to all three of you, starting with Ira. Well, I think, I think Schumer did a great job of managing the legislation and managing somehow to work on a bipartisan basis on the chips bill while bringing Joe Manchin around and, and reaching an agreement with someone who had been by and large very difficult. So Schumer did a great job. Uh, did he outwit McConnell? Possibly, possibly. Um, McConnell hasn't lost very many times. Um, one of the things that I'm struck by, because I think Senate leaders have a special responsibility to try to bring people together, I would say McConnell is often an ugly winner and an ugly loser. He's been divisive at times when he could have brought people together. Whether he wins or he loses, he's kind of the same in that regard. Uh Bill, did, did, what do you read into this legislative? Uh, yeah, no. Among I mean, other things, Donald Trump is preventing McConnell and Republicans from pushing back on the merit or demerit of the legislation. He's dominating the headlines. But, but do you think uh, McConnell got uh, outmaneuvered by, by Schumer? Yeah, or at least Schumer did a good job after having much, a lot of trouble in his first year, getting, keeping the 50 Democrats together, which is really what he had to do. It's not as if he peeled off Republicans, except where McConnell was willing to go along on infrastructure and, and chips. So, you know, you, it's, I wouldn't overstate how much of a, it's, it's a victory for Schumer. I'm not sure how much, you know, once he had Manchin and Senator, there wasn't much McConnell could have done and McConnell didn't do much. I just would say this, McConnell, it's an interesting, I mean, on the one hand, McConnell's a very strong leader. On the other hand, he's a strong leader in the service of, a part of partisanship and of a party that has rather narrow objectives, which is, you know, confirming Supreme Court judges and cutting taxes. 
So it's not exactly like being, I mean, he's both a stronger leader than Bob Dole ever was, but Bob Dole actually passed legislation that was more impressive to pass because it required actual work through committees and bipartisanship and so forth in a way that McConnell really hasn't done and hasn't had any interest in doing. It's such a different era. It's even hard, it's a little bit of apples and oranges. Uh, but I mean, I remember the point in passing, it's probably worth taking just one minute to dwell on, which is set at the Congress. The Congress is broken and increasingly broken and partly broken because of people like McConnell, which in turn then makes it more broken and harder to fix. It's a bit of a you know vicious cycle. Um, and so he's powerful, but in a broken institution. Now it's real power, I don't mean to diminish it, but it's not quite the same as an, I think what some great earlier uh, leaders did and, and, and has to be sort of understood in a, in a somewhat different way. And I, I do think the fixing of Congress, I mean, no one even thinks about this kind of thing anymore because public debates are so mostly silly and, and superficial, but you know, the truth is the other institutions, they have their problems, but the executive branch, mostly works adequately in the way it was supposed to. There are million things you and I would change, I believe, you know, in terms of all kinds of things. And but and the courts, same, I would say. And, and you know, it, the Congress is just, is the heart of it, though, and is so radically broken. The committee structure, the, the, the expertise, the authorizing and appropriating committees, all these things that, you know, what, now none of that happens. The leader run, and the degree to which the members of the party, it's a great achievement of McConnell to be so strong and to be able to snap his fingers and get 50 votes to block America Garland. But it's really bad. I mean, they are supposed to be senators and representatives of their states and districts and also exercising their individual judgment, as Burke said, uh, over, you know, almost 250 years ago. And instead, it's just, you know, the leadership makes a deal and they all just or doesn't make a deal and they go along. True problem in both parties, I'd say. And it's really it's, it's just bad for our deliberative democracy, honestly. And McConnell has both has gone along with that, benefited from it, probably and accelerated it by the way he's run things as well. And it certainly has shown no cognizance at all that there's a different way to, to, to help to have Congress function. So I'm gonna to go to you next, but I wanna um, get you to answer this question, but also the last question I have, actually two questions from the audience um, about the institution itself, um, which builds on what Ira and Bill just said. So Tony Booth again asks uh, about E.J. Dion's book, Proposing Preferential Voting. You know, the Alaska primary was an example of, of a structural change. Lisa Murkowski can get elected a moderate centrist because of preferential voting in Alaska. And uh, Edward Dam asks, why do the Americans even need a Senate anymore in the 21st century? So on the, let's end the discussion on the big institutional questions about the Senate itself. Are there are there, are there fixes? Do we need the Senate? Is there a future that E.J. Dion proposes or maybe even what Alaska did on a state-by-state -state basis? We'll go in uh, reverse order with Bruce, uh, Bill, and Ira. Uh, thanks so much. I, I think change of that, we have the Constitution. The Constitution is not going to be changed. The Senate will continue to exist. But I think reforms come best, most effectively from the bottom up. So preferential voting, even compulsory voting. I mean, I'd love to see a couple of small states that really have a sense of community like Vermont and Utah uh, experiment more with some of these reforms that could provide more a more democratic institution. And I think that's the answer. Top down, not going to happen. But I really hope that some of this stuff really does bubble up. Bill? 
look, I think there are a lot of uh, useful reforms. There are electoral reforms, ranked choice voting and the open primaries. There are congressional procedural reforms, committee structures and so forth. And, 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 and the way we select, well, many, many things one can go through there. And, and all, all these, uh, and they're all worth uh, exploring. Um, I do think in the short term, but they're not being talked about at all <laughs> much. I mean, there's a little bit happening at the state level, Alaska and so forth. And it is pretty amazing. Think of it this way. I'll leave on a slightly depressing note, maybe. I mean, we had this amazing event on January 6th, horrible event, preceded by two weeks, two months of a president trying to overturn using the Justice Department, Defense Department, et cetera, to try to uh, overturn an election, pressuring state legislatures. Uh, there's a lot of obvious stuff that could be done along the lines of just talking about procedural reforms to fix the way the Electoral College works in a very, really not partisan, Mike, including a lot of people have talked about this. You know, they just, we have something that was put into place 150 years ago that wasn't, you could strengthen the guardrails in a pretty unproblematic way. Maybe it'll happen in the next two months. Uh, finally, the legislation is but it hasn't happened yet. There's just this amazing lack of urgency about fixing the system. I think if you came down from Mars and looked at what's happened over the last six, seven years, or the last 20 years, really, in American politics, you would say, man, we need to fix this system. Where are the reformers? Where are the progressives? Where are the this conservative reformers, liberal reformers? You know, there are well, reformer cons and, you know, and, and, and left-wingers. I I mean, it, what's amazing and is unfortunate is that Trumpism, populism, and all that has sort of driven that debate so far out of sight. Maybe it's it's happening in a few think tanks. There's a good panel in AI, and this that's very nice, but you know it's not really um, central. So maybe that stuff could all come back. I think you have to kind of lance the boil though of Trumpism and populism, obviously first. Now Biden's done some of the, Biden is in my view has done it well as president in a sense by resisting a lot of it, but he's he's, he's been his energy's been taken up by resisting it. You know, getting us going again after the pandemic and some hot in the Ukraine. He's doing a lot, a fair number of things as president, but I wouldn't say that stuff is high on the agenda. And I don't blame him. He's got got to do what he's got to do first. But it would be nice to someone to come in and really with a kind of nineteen, you know, early twentieth century, let's say, sort of institutional reform agenda, which might include the electoral system and things in Congress and a lot of other things. But I think the bad news is, and it's just hard to do it until you kind of can get yourself a little bit free of the current uh, craziness. And I don't think that happens until at least uh, 2025. Ira, your love for this institution comes through in the book. Can it be, can it be saved? Well, one of the reasons that I'm such a McConnell critic is I remind people that our, our government, the Senate and our government weren't in very good shape before Donald Trump ever came on the scene. I mean, McConnell did frightening damage to the Senate and to the Obama administration presidency long before Trump decided to run. In a sense, he opened the doors to Trump uh, because people were understandably angry about a dysfunctional government. Now, turns out, if you don't, if you let an institution deteriorate and you don't do anything to fix it, it'll get worse. The last time the Senate rules were looked at systematically was 1979. The Senate doesn't work very well. The filibuster rule gets the most attention, but what about the fact that Rand Paul or Ted Cruz can stand up and object to a nomination or a whole bunch of nominations? We don't have an ambassador to India yet. I mean. 
reasonable people could come together to fix certain things about the Senate. I did it in 1977 with bipartisan, with a bipartisan group of senators in terms of ethics reform. There are other things you can do. It's not impossible to fix some of these things, but nothing substitutes for senators and Senate leaders who behave the way senators and Senate leaders are supposed to behave. As, you, as you've said, they're party members, but they're not supposed to be partisan hacks. And if they wanted to be state legislators, they should have stayed in their states. The United States senators, they have a privileged position. The reason I wrote the book and got so angry about it is they failed us in a catastrophically during a time of crisis, absolute crisis. And my second book, I was kind of, pointing to some optimistic signs. And I was proven wrong once Bob Flake and Jeff Flake and Bob Corker left the Senate. John McCain passed away. And the best part of Lindsey Graham died with John McCain. And all of a sudden, you didn't have very many independent thinking Republicans. So you can change institutions. I mean, you can change rules. But it really depends on senators behaving like real senators again. Well, I hope your next book is more optimistic <laughs> and that the Senate earns it. Um, My next book will be more optimistic because it won't be about the Senate, Mike. Yeah, but I, 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 for, my, for my part, I, I've never worked in the Senate. I'm, I have a little bit of optimism when I look at sort of my generation of, of senators. Um, we talked about Ben Sass, Todd Young. These are... Dan Sullivan, these are, and on the Democratic side as well, Chris Coons and, and others. I mean, these are really high quality people um, who may not by themselves change the system, but if there's enough of the kind of small reforms and changes and opportunities, we may, we may see a different kind of leadership. Who knows? Um, hope you write a book on it if, if we get it. Um, we, we um, uh, Bill and Ira uh, in Australia, um, you, I was stunned when I got here how much interest there is in American politics. In the 2016 election, uh, presidential election in the US, there was also a major national election in Australia. And the Australian media covered the US election much more than their own election. Um, and it's both fascinating, but it's important to our allies. And you're, you're, you're great to join us because this is, you know, where the United States goes is, I would argue, a more important variable for Australia or Japan or Korea or India than where China goes at the end of the day, because we uphold the system. China's, you know, challenging it and bumping up against it. So this is a really, um, although not all encouraging, um, very illuminating. At the U.S. Studies Center, we're conducting a major national poll in the U.S., Australia, and Japan on attitudes towards um, everything from gun control to abortion to China to trade. Um, just so we have a bit of a data base when the midterm elections happen. Um, to compare, and we're also going to do a major conference uh, right before the midterms with prominent American political commentators um, coming to uh, Sydney and Canberra. So um, you've, you've helped set up um, uh, that, but you've really uh, illuminated for our audience um, what to look for and uh, uh, even the small green shoots of optimism where they, are, where they exist. So thank you very, very much.